everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Rob Murgatroyd Show. Each week, I have conversations with some of the most fascinating people on the planet that can help you live a life of fulfillment. Speaking of fulfillment, if you want to hire me as your coach, head over to robshowcoach.com, fill out an application, and we'll jump on a call to see if we are a good fit to help you create and design your dream life and business. That's robshowcoach.com. Before we get into today's episode, our next Work Hard, Play Hard Mastermind event will be in Dubai and Abu Dhabi for the F1 race on November 16th to the 19th. So look, these trips are designed to get you out of your day-to-day, around some amazing entrepreneurs and provide bucket list experiences that will have you coming home re-energized to grow your business and bring your life to a whole new level. Head over to workhardplayhardexperience.com and fill out an application. All right, let's jump into today's show. You can make enormous enormous changes in your life just by starting your day by asking that question. What's the one thing I can do today such that by doing it, everything else will be easier and necessary? I was always afraid that people wouldn't know the answer. The reality is most of us are so busy, we're not stopping to think and ask. There's a saying out there that people in life who are most successful are those who are best at plan B. And in entrepreneurial world, you have to be ready to pivot. I mean, nobody predicted COVID. The good news is there's so many choices in this world. You can find things that do align with your values and allow you to get the things that you most want without having to forego very much. Jay, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. You're welcome. And I am super excited that you're here. So many people have recommended your book, your different books, And this concept of the one thing has come up a million times. What is the one thing, the one thing, the one thing keeps coming up, right? But I want to know a little bit more about you before we dig into that. So I think a great place uh, to start off with is what it was like for you growing up in Memphis, Tennessee in the 70s. You, You loved to write even back then at 12, you, uh, you plunked down a a typewriter and you started writing. Do you remember the sorts of things that you wrote about at that time? Oh, it was fantasy. I mean, my first love of literature came from a grade school teacher that read The Hobbit Aloud to us. And up until that point, I don't really have a memory of loving books. I played with Army Men and my G.I. Joe and The Lone Ranger and did a lot of solitary games. I've always been an introvert. Uh, but I started reading. I went to our library and started reading in fantasy and sci-fi. So all of my early writings were in some sort of genre. By high school, I was writing hard because I was into Stephen King. So I just uh, it wasn't until by accident, really, I started working in publishing and realized that I could apply some of that fun, creative process to nonfiction. Even when you were in college, though, your your roommate in college suggested that uh, you write down any word that you didn't know and make sentences with them. What are some maybe techniques or approaches that you recommend for people that are, you know, just starting out writing now? Uh, I love you that have that story. And my roommate, Scott, was a brilliant writer and he could spell and he could type fast. I still hunt and peck a little bit. I can type pretty fast because I've done so much of it, but I never took a typing class. Uh, I don't think I ever had phonics as a child. That's what my mom tells me. So I struggle with spelling a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, both of my parents were from Mississippi. My dad went to junior college, he was an engineer. Uh, my mom went to dental hygiene school. They were very, very smart human beings, but I didn't grow up with a wide vocabulary. So I still have those notebooks. I look through them every now and then. I did that probably for four years, maybe, mm-hmm. where every time I encountered a word I didn't know, I would write it down on a little paper bookmark in the book so I could enjoy the book. And then I would go back at the end and I would just handwrite it, write the word, write the sentence it was used in that I didn't understand it. And you know how it is in context, you can figure out a lot. 
but I had a pretty high standard. And then I would write the definition and then I would try to create my own sentence. And that's the sort of plotting small domino activity as we talk about in the book. Like what's the smallest thing that you could do, but if you're persistent over time, like little tiny investments add up, I I really vastly broadened my confidence and vocabulary my ability to use different words appropriately. And now I, I kind of go the opposite way. You know, why use a 50 cent word when a five cent word will do is kind of a, a mantra because we want our words, our works to be very accessible, but I still have this curiosity to know. And that was maybe one of my first one thing adventures, you know, really making these tiny investments, building a habit where I just didn't allow myself. This is the world before Google, right? Now today you're at the the dinner table, you'd say, hey, Google, what does ubiquitous mean? Right? And But that's not the same as learning. Asking for answers, I don't think it's the same thing. So anyway, I love that you brought that up. Um, I've written and edited books on writing. And the, the theme is always the same. Everybody has their habits. Hemingway wrote Standing Up with a pencil. You know, Hemingway had his famous typewriter and usually a bottle. Uh, everybody found their way to talk to their muse, but the discipline is you need to read a lot and you need to write a lot. And it's only through writing that you get better. So building the habit every day, even if it's one paragraph, will make you a tremendously better writer. You mentioned something with the $50 word and the 50 cent word, right? How important do you think story is versus proper prose? Well, story trumps all. I mean, story that's how trumps we learn. All. Yeah, story trumps all. If you can tell a good story to illustrate your point, um, it almost always sticks better. That's how our, our brains have evolved to learn. Uh, prose can be fixed by a good editor, right? Um, there are people who get paid and who love to help us express ourselves better. And in writing, you can take as long as you want to put your words out there, and hopefully they're authentic to you. But your ability to capture stories and tell them in a way that people, for me, I'm, I live in the world of nonfiction. Um, I want people to apply what we learn. So it's kind of a function of how to. We need to be able to tell stories that people can learn from and say, well, what would that look like for me? Okay. We're going to dig into the one thing in just a bit, but I have a few more earlier in your life questions. You, uh, you studied French in college. Yep. And you wound up being a French translator for a few years in Paris. Looking back on that experience, what stands out most to you? Well, perspective. You know, I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, which is a big, small town. My dad, as we were talking about before we started recording, I mean, for the first, I don't know, 15 years of my life, I was just, oh, you're Larry's son. We have a very unusual name. I still think I'm the only Jay Papazan in the world. Google really, it's never been a problem for me, right? In terms of being found. But people heard our last name and they were like, oh, you must be Larry's son. Hmm. And then my sister was an overachiever. You must be Jan's little brother, right? Hmm. So uh, I got perspective from outside that bubble of Memphis. I was always reading. I started reading the newspaper in college every day. It's a habit I still do. Just... I did it originally so I'd have small talk because I was nervous around girls. I just wanted something to say, right? Um, but the, I would read the, the, thi- the things we do for chicks. I know, I know. <laughs> did you hear about that strike in Michigan? I mean, you talk about it. Uh, but it was something, right? Because usually all you had to do is start the conversation and things yeah. naturally came. But for me, right. it was starting. But uh, those things happen, but it's very different to see your own country from another country. And I think Clinton, uh, the election happened while I was there. And I remember going to a party where we got to vote and seeing the French people and the Americans abroad, seeing America from abroad was a real eye opener for me. And it helped me view our democracy in a whole new way. It's fragility um, and it's anti-fragility as well. But there's just so much that you could put into that. But perspective is the number one takeaway. When you see the world from another place, you see your home from another place in the world, you get a real sense of the vastness, the humanity, and all the choices. And I mean, frankly, 
I won the lottery. I was born to a great family in the United States. Um, I'm a man. There's so many advantages that come from that. I'm 6'3". There's so many advantages that come from that. I didn't have any particular disabilities. I mean, you realize that that could have been born in India. I could have been born anywhere, right? And not enjoyed some of those advantages and had to fight for things that I take for granted. So that was what hit home. That and the fact that, man, we studied history in books. The girls I was dating and the people I was friends with, like they went to, like their field trips were go to a museum or to visit a castle. Like they went to the actual spots where history was created that we read about. So perspective. Yeah, it's crazy. You you could have been stuck five foot six like me. I mean, that's another that's another problem. So I'm I'm right there with you. We hate you guys. So but I you work. I mean, I bet that the the facilities in 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 Europe function much better for your body size than they did for me. <laughs> I, I right. remember trying to take a shower and just eating pretzel. I was like, oh my gosh. All right. I want to fast forward a little bit. You came back from Paris and uh, you went to uh, to NYU. And yep. you worked at uh, HarperCollins for a little bit. And then you decided to move to Austin. Why did you decide to move to Austin? Well, the, the story there is I met my wife when I was in New York. Um, we got married in upstate New York on a friend's farm. And we both loved to travel. She knew that I'd lived abroad. She'd lived abroad. And we knew that the moments of transition, and we knew that we both kind of thought about leaving New York. She was always game. She grew up in outside of Fargo, North Dakota. So she's been moving her whole life, usually to warmer climates, which is almost by default. And uh, she's like, let's travel. And so we put all of our stuff in storage. We quit our jobs. And we went on a five to, depending on who you talk to, I think it was five and a half months. She says it's five month backpacking honeymoon. We literally spent the first night of our honeymoon on a park bench in Paris waiting for a train. And uh, that was a great adventure. And we talked about where will we move? And we narrowed it down to Asheville, North Carolina, uh, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and Austin, Texas. We had friends that had moved to Asheville and we knew it was a really cool, beautiful spot. There was a publishing house called Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill that I had admired from afar. They did a lot of Southern fiction, which I, at that time in my life, was very much into. And we had an end. One of her friend's moms had been a publisher there and Austin, Texas. She went to the University of Wisconsin. My wife, Wendy, did. Here's the fact. When you go to the beach on spring break from Madison, Wisconsin, I, I, I was shocked. They went to South Padre Beach in Texas. Because to drive, like if you go west, where are you going to go? You have to go all the way to Southern California to get anywhere where it's sunny. You're not going to go swimming on the coast of Oregon, mm -hmm. right? If you go east, you're like, that's a huge trip. And now you're, you know, Long Island or whatever. It just made a lot of sense to hit that I-35 corridor and head south. And so she had been to Austin three times, usually in a suburban with three or four friends and just mm -hmm. said, it's a really cool town we should visit. So when we got back, we were sleeping on couches, doing freelance work trying to decide we came to Austin for a weekend and New York city to Austin in February. We left, you know, black slush overcoats, right? Uh, it, Manhattan's an Island. It can be bitter cold and Austin, Texas, it can be in the eighties in February. Mm -hmm. So I just remember looking around, everything felt so cheap coming from New York. I bought a beer and I was like, how much is that again? Mm -hmm. I, mean, I just couldn't believe how cheap things were. And the population here was very young and is still very young. Mm -hmm. And I just remember thinking, wow, it's like the city is like made for us. They had a lot of good local restaurants, even back then. It wasn't a lot of chains and stuff. Austin, you know, the get uh, the keep Austin weird, which is a slogan here, was a battle cry for supporting local businesses versus mm -hmm. chains. Started with Borders Bookstore and our local bookstore book people and our local record store fighting that kind of movement the big box movement. And so we actually came in for a weekend, loved it so much. We just moved here without jobs in 2000. So that's how we got here. The long and short of it. Uh, we visited, fell in love and moved here without jobs. I hadn't had a driver's license for so long. We couldn't get an apartment. Did you have no idea? idea? Did you have any idea that every influence in the world in the last three years was going to move to Austin? Oh, no. 
there was uh, only one tower that was being completed when we moved here downtown, the Frost Bank Tower. It looks like an owl at the top. And there was no downtown. There was some nightlife on 6th Street, but there was no downtown shopping. I just remember Wendy worked downtown and it was such a contrast to New York City. And uh, the city has just changed. I mean, I think 50,000 people moved here last year. It's so there's been a mass migration here. Started with Dell and the university and the capital, great jobs. And now we've become kind of a tech and cultural hub of some kind. It's been crazy. Hey, it's Rob. I want to jump in and take a quick second to say you got to get a coach. It just makes a difference. A coach can offer you perspective and accelerate your goals so much faster. If you want to work with me, head over to robshowcoach.com, fill out an application, and we'll jump on a call. All right, let's get back to the show. It's crazy. All right, so I'm going to take you now from Austin to the men's room. Tell me how you met Gary Keller in the men's room. Well, you, you led with the, the, the <laughs> line, right? So I took a job at Keller Williams in 2000, the fall of 2000. My, my, I was making a little bit of money freelancing, but my wife basically fired me. She's like, enough of this, go get a job, right? Yeah. yeah. I think my uh, taxable income that year was like 18,000. Way to contribute to the marriage, Jay. So even though things were cheaper, I, I definitely moved us backwards. Not that I made a lot of money in publishing. But it was very small. There were only 27 employees and 6,700 agents back then. And about two years into that journey, I just remember liking it because it was very entrepreneurial. You know, I got to bump into the founder, Gary Keller. And I saw one of our designers working on what was clearly a book jacket. And I thought he was freelancing at work. I didn't care. And I asked him about it. His name was Brad. I can't remember his last name. And he said, yeah... Gary and Dave, Dave Jinks was our former co-author who passed away last year, are writing a book. And the cover they were working on uh, was a book we haven't even gotten around to yet called No One Succeeds Alone. And I ran into Gary, I don't know, a day later in the bathroom. And uh, as I remember it, like he was plunging the toilet. He owned the building and it was a Class C commercial building. Didn't even have an elevator for handicapped people. And it was too hot in the summer and too cold in the winter. But you know, he made some crack about the chairman of the board, you know, does whatever it takes. And I laughed and I just said, hey, I hear you're writing a book. Do you remember I used to work in publishing? And he invited me into his office and he's a salesman. She proceeded to sell me on a vision for writing 13 books, the first of which was the millionaire real estate agent. And he held out his comps, as we call them, right? He had five books that they had been modeling for how they wanted to write a book. And it turns out two of them were books I'd edited at HarperCollins. Wow. Mia Hams Go for the Goal and Bill Phillips' Body for Life. And I showed him my name and the credits and told him the story of those books. And he pretty much hired me on the spot. We went through an interview process, but he called my boss and said, good news, bad news. Bad news, you lost an employee. Good news, he's working for me. And I'll, I'll approve the backfill. And I moved into a little office outside of his. And about 100 days later, I had, I had 30 days to do a business plan for him. But we wrote our first book in about 90 days. That's how it started. Wow. Uh, as, a, as an aside, how is Bill Phillips doing now? I know he's You know, was I've not run doing... into some characters from that book process. I lost touch with Bill Phillips. At the time, he was very eccentric. Yeah. Um, he would only communicate with us via fax for the most part. Mm-hmm. He was very, uh, he held his time very highly in value, right? Not, not, that's not an aspersion. I'm not, you know, it's not a criticism, but he didn't want to waste time. He thought that letters were too slow. Email, people just didn't ever get to the point. Phone calls, you'd end up talking about the weather. But he had found that when someone had to fax, they had all the formality of the letter. They made sure that they got it all done and it was quick. So he edited that book that way. But some of the other figures I've kept up with um, I think he made a lot of money. Um, he ended up, I saw him every now and then on the, the Denver Broncos. He was a huge Denver Broncos fan sideline. But I don't know where he ultimately ended up. But I'll, I've heard from our, my old friends at the publishing house that worldwide, that book sold over 6 million copies. Oh, it's so He definitely touched a lot of lives, made a big impact. And he changed the way people thought about weightlifting and cardio for that matter. Crazy successful. In fact, um, Jerry Seinfeld was on um, 
Tim Ferriss's podcast not that long ago. And he, Jerry Seinfeld said the only book on nutrition that has ever made sense for him was Body for Life. Holy cow. Um, That's yeah, so cool. If you listen to it, they talked about Body for Life, um, I would say for 10, 15 minutes. So um, that was really, really cool. Um, I don't know if you know this. Um, he got sick uh, about like four months ago, five months ago. His wife posted a picture of him and he was in a coma. Um, oh, no. Yeah, he had COVID. And it affected him terribly. I don't know what the uh, what the thing was. That's what I when I brought that up. I, I didn't know if you knew that. Um, that's why that's what I was asking about. It's 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 crazy. All right. So you you posted something on Instagram not that long ago that really really caught my attention, and I messaged you on it. I don't know if you remember, but I came across a uh, a clip on YouTube. Um, when I saw the post where you talked about someone telling you that there's only so long that you have with your kids before they don't want to hang out with you anymore. And it really, really hit me because I thought about it. You know, we, we mentioned off camera or off, off recording um, that, you know, I'm living in Florence now and I've got a seven-year-old and a wife and I'm, you know, making some changes in my life about how I want to live it. And I've got, you know, a 15-year-old uh, dog that's sitting at my foot here. And I've got a seven-year-old daughter. And, you know, my wife's name is Kim and my daughter's name is Sophia. And my dog is Gia. And, you know, in my journal, I wrote that morning, there's only so long I have to do this Rob, Kim, Sophia, Gia dog thing in Italy. And, you know, it's not going to go on forever. So... right. In what ways do you apply? And, and I, I gave a name to it. I, I call it a, I called it a, a mini death. You know, there's oh. these little mini deaths that we have. Sometimes they're actual deaths, but sometimes they're mini deaths. In, in what ways do you apply that principle um, that we're talking about here in, in your own life? Well, I think that it's this limiting factor. Like I, I tend to be. Uh, this optimistic, pessimist, realist type. I mean, I don't know how to call it, but I always believe everything's possible. <laughs> That's all but three. My default is to figure out everything that could go wrong first. Say, all right, what's my plan for these potholes in the road? Great, I can get there in the car. And so I, I'm a thoughtful planner, but then I believe everything is possible. And yes. uh, this idea that we have real hard limits to our choices. Um, it's actually, there was a graphic that didn't make it into the book. And it's the subject of a TEDx talk that I gave, which I guess you saw a clip from. I did. And it's this idea that um, we, there's all the things that you could know, have, and do. And the problem with knowing everything is the world's way too rich, right? But if we make choices early on, we can have a deep set of knowledge around something. That's what people do. They go to school for eight years and get a PhD, right? In something. And even without those letters at the end of your name, we can all in today's world with education, get a deep, deep understanding of a handful of things in our lifetime. But to do that, you have to make choices. And I realized late in life that my financial intelligence wasn't where it was should have been. And we had to write a few books about it. So I committed and I generally read about five books on personal finance and investing every year. And I read about 50 or so uh, for two years straight uh, when I was writing the books. I was just deep into that research. And at a point in time, you collect a body of knowledge. And then you're just looking for, what do I subtract and add? Right? Is there something I believe that's no longer true? And if that's not true, what goes in that spot? And you develop these theses, I call them models. Gary calls them models for how we behave and that that they act as shortcuts. So you can become an expert, but man, there's more, but there's, there will be more books published this month than I can read in my lifetime. And I read about 45 to 50 a year. And so I just, you look up and you have to make choices. And once you acknowledge that, you start making better ones. You can't have it all, but you could collect something. And I, I think you have a question about that later on, right? No matter how wealthy you are, there are limits to what you can own. 
And if that's important to you, then you have to make choices. And for me, it was the doing. And so I walked into the writing room when my kids were seven and six-ish. And it was our first real spring break where both of the kids had spring break at the same time. They were both in school. And we just bought a house with a pool. And my wife and I were overwhelmed from buying the house, right? We were cash poor. Um, I was working on a book with Gary and she had a million things going on. I think she was starting her career about then. And we looked up and we decided to do a staycation for spring break. And so that's the origin of this idea. And it was where it really hammered at home. Intellectually knowing it and emotionally knowing it are different. And I shared that with Gary when he asked what we were doing for spring break. And he's got an older son who works with me now, John Keller. So he'd been down this journey. And his response was immediate. He just said, you know, Jay, you've only got about 10 left. And that's if you're lucky. And I was kind of offended and angry. Like he was questioning my choice, right? And usually defensiveness signals something for me, right? I like to be right. And it usually means that I'm wrong about something. And I'm not yeah, quite ready to admit it to myself. It's that me thinketh thou protestest too much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I just said, what do you mean? And he said, in 10 years, my oldest Gus, you know, he'll be 16 or 17. And this idea of mom, dad, and the kids going on spring break, that's over. He'll be going with his significant other or going with his buddies. So they'll be coming with you. But this dynamic of two parents and two kids, if you're lucky, you've maybe got 10 left. So I went home and just told my, parent, my wife, I was like, well, we're horrible parents. <laughs> We've totally missed it this time. But knowing that, right, again, time is limited. Now, based on that, how do I choose? Most of us are choosing every day, like we have unlimited choices. It's not until people get older, right? I'm in my 50s too. You look up and you realize, whoa, 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 time is limited. I've got to think harder about these choices. And knowing that we had 10, like we took them to Disneyland, right? We started looking up and going, based on our kids' ages, our finances, knowing that we only had a limited number of slots, now it's so much easier to choose. And there's a ton of research around choice that says when you limit it, we're more likely to choose better. And we actually just sometimes we don't choose at all if we have too many choices. So that's the origin story of it. I think that uh, Ryan Holiday would evoke, you know, memente mori, right? And that idea of always acknowledging that life could end. And it doesn't mean we should live every day like it's your last because we'd all be horribly irresponsible, right? We wouldn't pay our bills and all that crap. But maybe there's a Latin phrase for time is limited and that would be better. But that's the point of that idea. I love that. Okay, so let's, let's talk about the one thing. For those who have not read the book and heard of the book, could you explain briefly the concept of the one thing? So I'll do it through the lens of how people get it wrong. Okay. I think a lot of people are intrigued by the title, The One Thing. Well, what is it? Right? I want to know what that is. And they end up interpreting it as the only thing. And that just doesn't acknowledge reality, right? The, the whole point is that if you have a goal to be a great husband, to be a great spouse, to be a great parent, to be great at whatever it is you do, chances are you're going to have to make a stand around something and identifying your singular priority. We talked about it earlier. If you're a writer and don't write, you're not a writer. Right? Eventually, you have to build a habit and that becomes the battle you take every day. Stephen Pressfield wrote a fantastic book around battling the resistance. right? And that idea that you have to fight that battle every day and figuring out what it is for you. There are some things like professions where with a little study, a little observation of the people who tend to do a lot more than others and are more successful, you can suss out what the one thing is for us emotionally and personally. It's usually a very personal answer. So you have to address multiple areas of your life this way over time. So you may have, I have a one thing for my marriage. I have a one thing uh, for my job. I have a one thing for investing. These are habits that I've built around what I think is the foundation 
And after building those, you realize that all the other stuff that you still have to do just gets easier, sometimes unnecessary. So that's the big idea, right? Is that you've got to figure out in this moment in time, based on what I want to achieve, what's my number one priority, right? Priority literally means first. That's the Latin origin. So it's weird that we ever made it plural at all, right? If you think about that. Mm -hmm. So what is my number one priority and how do I give that priority disproportionate resources and time? That is the recipe for extraordinary success. That's our thesis in the book. Okay. So let's say that you're an entrepreneur and you have a goal for something. And you are sort of like looking out at this amorphous blob of, I could do this, I could do that. I don't really know. I've never done this before. This is new. This is a first. How do you identify what the one thing is if you really don't know? Well, we have a question in the book. It's the focusing question, which we wait about 70 or 80 pages to share because I think it's so simple that people underestimate it. But what's the one thing I can do such that by doing it, everything else will be easier and necessary? And that's a a question that came from Gary's coaching regime that was honed over the years. But it really helps you get to what's the the most levered activity I can currently do that will get me to my goal, right? Um, And the 80-20 principle. But I'm going to add a little bit to it because you asked a bigger question than just that singular tool. When I think about an entrepreneur... I would usually ask a series of questions. Ultimately, where are you going with this? So they may say, let's go back to the, I want to be a best-selling author, right? I want to write the book for my industry that'll help solidify me in my field to grow my business, right? So that's a very specific goal. That's out there in the future. We have a process called goal setting to the now. The problem with that big goal in the future most of us have zero idea how to behave this week to know that we're actually making progress for it. And so we work backwards from it and say, where would you need to be in five years to feel like you are absolutely on track for that? And hopefully there's just one answer. That's what you asked. What's the one thing you would have to do in the next five years, right? To absolutely feel, and I'll just throw it out there. I would have completed a final draft of my manuscript. Awesome. Great. Well, based on having completed your final draft in five years, What do you think you would have to complete by the end of this year in order to feel like you were on track for that? So we've we've changed the scope of the question. We've moved it closer to the present. And let's just say they say, well, I would have to have a detailed outline right? that I could be researching and writing to. Awesome. Great. So in one year, you're going to have a detailed annotated outline for this book that you'll complete in five years, maybe less, but that's going to be your ticket to being a best-selling author in your field to establish your business. Great. Well, in order to complete that detailed outline by the end of the year, what do you think you would have to accomplish by the end of this month in order to feel like you're absolutely on track for that? Then they give you your answer. You know, I have to, I have to pick my topic or my thesis. Awesome. Well, based on that, what would you have to do this week? Great. Well, based on your weekly goal, what do you have to do today? And for Gary, like I remember walking him through that process because he did it all the time. And I was like, how did you know that answer? And in retrospect, it always looks clear, but he goes like, we broke it down and then we we wrote about it in the book. It's just one page, I think. But goal setting to the now is when people say, start with the end in mind, that's kind of practically how to approach it. We have to work backwards and then you're placing a bet, but it's a directional bet. When I look up today and say, I want to be a best-selling author, what should I do today? There's just a bajillion choices. I've not narrowed it down at all. I could go start reading about best-selling books. I could go interview best-selling authors. I could start writing. But those are all of the answers that could be, and they're not in a line with where you're going. And here's the truth. That five-year answer for almost all of us in this fast-moving world with technology and everything else, those crystal ball answers are rarely absolutely accurate. But they usually are directionally true. Mm. And each month... As we do, right? It's not could do, should do, or would do. It's what can I do today? Our experience helps us ask the question again and have a sharper answer for us. And so the book was originally going to be titled The Success Habit. 
Because this process of identifying our, our singular priority, our one thing, we wanted that to be the first and foremost habit anyone formed after reading the book. So much so that if you flip it over and the hardcover edition, like it just has a question mark on the back. No plaudits. We could have gotten, we'd already written multiple bestsellers. We could have had all the stuff on there to market the book. But a lot of folks just turn the book around on their desk and have that question to confront them because we want them to have that habit. That's now, good. I just threw a lot at you there. Do we need to unwind some of that? I don't think so because I read the book um, and I strongly recommend, obviously, anybody uh, listening needs to get it. It's not, a, it's not a really big book. And once you understand the principle, every section, whether it's you know goal setting to the now or whatever, whatever subject you're on, you're basically asking the same damn question over and over again. Yeah. Um, so I, I that's actually that. the subject of, I went and did an analysis. I went on mechanical Turk. I got someone at that time to take, we had a thousand reviews and I just got all the Amazon reviews and asked, what can we learn from this? And it was funny. The thing that all the five-star reviews or most of them, right. And the one-star reviews had in common was this idea of the simplicity that was either worked for you. You like this idea of building around a singular idea, or it didn't work for you. Okay, I wanna jump in for 15 seconds and say, if you're an entrepreneur grinding away and not taking time to experience extraordinary things around the world with other entrepreneurs, you may wanna join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard Mastermind to Dubai on November 19th. Head over to workhardplayhardexperience.com and fill out an application. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It, it reminds me like when they interview people who have become incredibly successful and, you know, uh, th they've interviewed twins and one twin is crazy successful, the other one's in jail. And they both answer with a father like that, how else would I wound up, <laughs> you know, wound up this yeah. way? Do you know what I mean? So it's like the five star reviews are saying it's simple and the one star is saying it's simple. So it depends on how you want to apply it. When when you wake up in the morning and you do your personal planning now, yeah, do you go through this process every day now, or is it just a part of you and it's just a thinking tool? In other words, do you do you have a one thing planner? Do you you know do, is there a formal process in doing it, or is it now just you know uh, a tool in your toolkit that you use to think through your day? Uh, you could make enormous, enormous changes in your life just by starting your day by asking that question. What's the one thing I can do today such that by doing it, everything else will be easier and necessary? I was always afraid that people would know the answer. The reality is most of us are so busy, we're not stopping to think and ask. And the answer is usually obvious. And at the end of the day, if we didn't ask it, we feel guilty for ignoring whatever that thing was, right? So just first and foremost, we can keep it simple. But I do have uh, a month at a glance calendar. Uh, it's something I fought for years. Uh, but Gary asked, you know, he goes, if you want to ask big questions of your life, you need a big view of your time. And what you can see on your phone is just not sufficient for him. He wants to look at the month and go, well, how many writing days do we have? It's not everything. It's not all of your appointments. Like, what are our big priorities and how are they showing up this month? Right? When is my son's birthday? When are we planning his party? When is my EA's anniversary? And how will I celebrate her success and vice versa, right? There's a handful of things that matter and those go on your paper calendar. The rest of it, all the changing meetings, they happen on my phone. So yes, I have a process and we have a simple form. And for you, if you're watching, like I keep it as a bookmark in my journal every day. And all it has is what are my annual goals for the year? Based on those, each month I update what are my monthly goals. And each week I update what are my weekly goals. We call it a 411. It's four weeks, one month, one year in reverse. But it plays on the old, you know, dial 411 to get information. And it's just a simple process of that goal setting to the now. You know, I'm I'm acting this week on things that will hit help me hit my monthly goals. Those monthly goals should propel me to my annual goals, which are in line with, if you flip through a couple of pages in my little stack of papers, I've got our business and family five-year goals. Well, and we just go through this process of resetting and it's a rhythm. I love the, I love the way you put this because my, my, I don't want to say critique the, 
pushback that I had in reading the book was... Go ahead and critique it. I'm totally fine to debate it. I love it when people challenge your ideas. Maybe there's a better one in your head right now. No, it's, it's not that there's a better one. It was... When I look back on my entrepreneurial life and I ask myself, you know, what's my five-year plan? After a while, you you know this because you're in your 50s now too. It's sort of silly because if I look back on where I was five years ago, there was no chance I was going to be living in Italy. I wouldn't be. If somebody would have said to me five years ago, are you going to be living in Italy um, interviewing Jay Papasan about the what? Like it's it's like it was so far from my reality at the time. And, and I can continue to do that. But what you did was you said to me directionally, and that was the piece that I needed to hear. It was, you're probably not going to be there in five years, but directionally, you're going to be going in some direction. It may not be Italy. It may not be Europe, but you are looking for fulfillments. You are looking for... So that piece, I wanted to say that because my reluctance when I read the book was like, I can't plan to the now five years because who the hell knows what I'm going to be doing in five? Like that it's, it's never been accurate. So there's a, there's a saying out there that people in life who are most successful are those who are best at plan B and in entrepreneurial world, you have to be ready to pivot. I mean, Nobody predicted COVID, right? Exactly. Um, there were a couple of people screaming about the Great Recession before it started, like, this is a problem. But nobody was listening because times were too good. So you have to, one, as an entrepreneur, know that things will change and you have to adjust them. And I'll, I'm going to tell you a couple of stories. Yep. So when we wrote this book, one of the reasons it took us four and a half years is we were getting to that detailed outline, which is a part of our process, not everyone's. And that was when the market shift happened. And I remember, like, we were loving this book. I'm getting chill bumps thinking about how fun it was to go in every day and do the research. And I was reading about psychology and how we get things wrong and all this stuff. I was like driving my family crazy talking about this book. And Gary sat down in the room and he goes, You know, the real estate market's about to go through a really bad period. I've seen this before. I don't think this book is our one thing anymore. And we hit pause. We had a, a full-time researcher that we said, you stay on this, go build our binders. And over the next seven months, we wrote a book called Shift, How Top Agents Tackle Tough Times. And that in itself, like to write it, publish it, and then promote it, took us out of the day-to-day working on that book for almost a year and a half. But it was absolutely what we needed to do. So that's the entrepreneur story, right? When the world shifts, the market shifts, a meteor named COVID lands on earth, you have to adjust. That's what businesses have to do. We have to meet the needs of our customers and their needs change, period. On the the aspirational side, when I have a a group of hunting and fishing buddies, they all mountain bike and I refuse to get into another expensive casual activity. I already fly fish. So I was like, I'm not doing that, but I'll meet you for darts and beers and we'll go hunt and fish together. Well, my son, Gus was probably... 11, he started asking to go with me. And this is a big deal. I mean, some of my earliest memories of my father are him taking me hunting. I mean, I grew up in the South. If that horrifies you, I'm sorry. But um, that was a big deal for me. It was a, a rite of passage. And I remember asking my buddy, Robert, I just said, hey, can I bring Gus? And the first couple of times he was like, oh, yes, awesome. It'd be great to have a kid there. And then he's like, you know, they want to drink whiskey by the fire. Yeah, this is Austin, Texas. We got Willie Nelson. A couple of them wanted to smoke some stuff by the fire. And they're like, I don't, I don't think it's going to be appropriate to have a kid there at this time. And I remember turning to Wendy and I said, I want to buy a ranch. And she's like, you're out of your mind. You know, we're building our wealth. We don't buy luxuries, right? That's not what we do. I'm, you know, I drove, we drive cars till the wheels come off. We don't, we don't spend money for it. We're saving so we can invest for our future and in independence. And I put it on our five-year goals anyway. I just said, I want to put it there. My son wants to go do these activities with me. Texas does not have much public land that I would feel safe taking him on, especially with guns involved. And I, I want to have access so that when he wants to go, we go. And for the first two years, nothing happened. It just sat there. It's like a lot of those someday goals. 
we weren't really doing anything. And it was far enough in the future, we felt like we had time. And I remember about two years into it, one of my good business buddies, a guy named Ben Kenny, hugely successful. He's a, one of the people I would travel and fish with. I told him about it. And he goes, well, man, I'll buy a ranch with you. That's on my goal list too. And all of a sudden, it changed the calculus. I went back to Wendy and I said, well, Ben would be happy living in Washington state to own 50% of a ranch in Texas because he comes here seven times a year. He can make use of it. He's got the wealth to handle it. And he'll go in pure 50-50 with us. And because I've got kids and he doesn't, we can leave the ranch to our heirs. That changed everything. All of a sudden, something that looked unaffordable and not possible, right, now became possible. Now, when Wendy talks about this, she always was against it. She still kind of refers to it as our land yacht, right? Referring to it's a lot of expense without much wealth attached to it. But she knew it was important to me because I hadn't stopped talking about it for a lot of years. It wasn't just a thing, right? Entrepreneurs have a lot of those things that just show up out of the blue and they're really, really important until they're not. But I'd been very consistent about why it was important to me. So when it became possible, she got on board and we bought that ranch and we have our 300 acres which seems like a lot until you talk to some of these Texans who have ranches the size of small states and the, the mid-Atlantic states, right? They'll, they refer to my ranch as a big backyard, but I'm fine. It's all I can handle. And I can go there with my friends. My son has never pulled the trigger on a living animal, but he likes to go shoot. That's the way he turned out. He likes to shoot skeet and he likes to shoot targets. And I'll never ask him to kill something if he doesn't want to. But sometimes he goes, can I go and sit in the stand with you and spot for you? just to hang out with his dad. Victory. But those are two stories that kind of show there are things that we think we want. And sometimes over time, it's validated. And what seemed impossible becomes possible. That's one side. And then there are things we absolutely know we want to do, like write this book, The One Thing. But because circumstances change, we know that we have to put that off because there's something, a new priority that we have to address. You know, what's interesting to me about that story is your why was so compelling that like all I wanted to do when you first started telling that was I wanted to help you get a ranch. <laughs> you, know what, <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like, we yeah. got to get this guy a ranch because it was well, so... You told was, me your story about Sophia and realizing that your time was limited. The moment you acknowledge that, these things become more urgent. They become more 75% urgent. 75% of the time we get with our kids is between now and the time they go off to college. 75% of the time we spend with them in our lifetime. And I'm coming to the end of that period. You still got a decade to go, buddy. I know. Right? And I know. I know. And I remind myself that too, because, you know, it's a little, it's, I have a 24-year-old from a first marriage and oh. a seven-year-old from a second. And um, it's a little different doing it this go around in a lot of ways, which is a whole other podcast. But yeah. um, I want to talk to her sister would tell you it was a lot different for me just three and a half years after her. And she complains about what I got to do that she didn't vice versa. Parents for, learn and grow too. For sure. Speaking of learning and growing, how do you balance? You are, you're a super successful author. Your name is now very well known. Um, how do you balance fulfillment and achievement at this stage of your life? Hmm, that's an interesting question. Well, one, I don't, I don't feel like the kind of person that you described. Uh, in the real estate industry, people recognize me because I've written a lot of books with Gary Keller, the founder of this you know, book. Most people don't know who I am around the one thing until they hear my name. And that's that odd chance that they read it. So, I mean, I've only seen my book in the wild a few dozen times. And that's always a thrill, right? Oh my gosh, look, someone's reading my book over there. Um, I tell people that ask, because my assistant came to me to a real estate convention for the first time in our own company, 18,000 people, all of whom know who I am. And I don't know who any of them are. And I just said, it's kind of like being a champion duck caller at a duck convention, right? I mean, like in this world, I am a celebrity, but in nowhere else am I. Like, you know, so uh, for me, I try to go to my values. My, I'm increasingly understanding of my core values impact is the one that is the tip of the spear. And I just try to make sure that the decisions I'm making um, allow me to continue making an impact in the areas that matter to me. And that's kind of uh, my true north, right? It helps guide my decisions and reduce my regrets. 
And you know, when I think about my purpose, uh, my father was a great example. Um, just I want to leave a very positive impact on the place I live and my family, my, my marriage, my business, and the world in general, if I can. And I'm always asking, how can I make that impact bigger? And there's guide rules around that too. Like, you know, I can't choose things that take me away from my family. Um, that's just a no-no. But the good news is there's so many choices in this world. You can find things that do align with your values and allow you to get the things that you most want without having to forego very much. A lot of entrepreneurs are, you know, we talked a little bit at the beginning where I personally was, you know, I was always chasing, you know, three times whatever income I was making. I just wanted to make more, right? And then you hit a point where you go, oh, this is a, this is a crazy game I'm playing. Like I'm like, there's always going to be, you know, an Elon Musk or a Bill Gates that's hitting that next level. Do you do you have challenges in your life where you feel like I should be doing more from a business perspective? versus I should be spending more time with my family now? In other words, is there a push-pull on you with feeling like you want to do more? And yeah, but I really want to be spending more time with my family. So in other words, how are you balancing those two sides? Does that question make sense? It does. I, I just don't... I, I think that I've maybe lived in a way that I've avoided that challenge for so long that it's not... I, but I'll still try to answer it because it could be there are a lot of people, and I was one of them, you know, that that face that challenge on a daily basis. Um, I think there are times that we make calculated sacrifices, right? Especially when we're young, we maybe work longer hours when we're working to learn, and then in the beginning earn. But there's a great book out there by Morgan Housel, The Psychology of Money. Have you read it? No. I highly recommend it. We gave okay. away copies to all of our, our clients in my wife's uh, real estate business last year okay, um, or the year before, actually. Fantastic book. But he writes very eloquently about how we move the goalpost on ourselves. And there's this idea called hedonic adaptation. Mm -hmm. And that's a big 50 cent word. But it basically means whatever level of success we get to will very rapidly appear normal. And then the goalposts move on us because the guy next door has got a faster car or a, there's always going to be a newer car. There's always going to be a fancier watch, right? And the world of especially material and often just in, in, in achievement, there's always someone who's doing more. So as long as our goalposts are external, we can get into this kind of rat race mm. where we never truly get to enjoy the victories that we achieve because we're always comparing where we are to some ideal future. Mm. And that's just a very hard place to be. And I, and there are my bad days. I go there too. Like I look at Ryan holiday and like, that guy is so prolific. I'm like, I wish I had his writing habits, but in my own way, I've done my job. I also have, I'm a leader and I run businesses. He doesn't do as many of those things. And I've had impact in other ways. My success is mine. So I really think we have to start with our values Based on those values, where are we going? And understand, where, where is our finish line? My wife and I crossed some of our big financial finish lines a long time ago. And the challenge with that is now, what do we do? Mm. And I also believe that you don't grow as a human being if you're not growing in terms of how you interact with the world. So if at this early date, we just said, I'm going to retire, I'm going to travel the world. I don't think that would be good for us. I enjoy my work. I get fulfillment from my work and I want to continue asking the question. But now it's not about money. It's not about royalties and books. I expect those things because I don't like to be treated unfairly or cheat myself unnecessarily. I'll take tax breaks, but I don't mind the government paying for highways and a standing army and all those things that I enjoy. Right. So I don't want to be foolish. But I also know that there are costs incurred. And I, I do well when I'm working. And I do well when I'm making an impact. And I'm learning and, and growing as a human being. So the reasons that we're doing the things have changed. But we're still on a trajectory that we enjoy. And at some point, that may change. But that'll be changed because of our values. So all I would tell people is be very, very careful You know, when we compare ourselves to anybody around us. We have no idea how they feel about what they've achieved. You know, a lot of the people we admire 
are in miserable marriages, right? Or they're unhealthy. Like they have problems that they're just not sharing with the world. Right. So getting really clear about what it is we want is very hard. And the end in mind, it's very hard to define it. But the clearer we get, the easier it is to say no to the nonsense. That was a very inarticulate but heartfelt no, that answer. Was, I'm sorry. That, that was incredibly articulate, prolific, and actually helped me. So thank you. Um, all yeah. right. Well, we are... I mean, I can't believe an hour has gone by already. So I'm going to we're going to do, do a, a speed round here because I'm I'm actually overtime. Are you okay on another five minutes? Oh yeah, absolutely. All right, cool. So I'm going to ask you some questions that will probably fall into the these are really weird. Why is he asking me these category? Um, what new behavior or habit has most improved your life? New behavior or habit. Yeah, I'm and pretty some methodical of the- about my acquisition of habits. Um, I think during COVID, um, with all the political division, I made a decision to diverse- diversify some of my morning reading. Um, I'm from the South, um, yet I live in Austin, which is a little blue island in a very red state. And I made the choice to start reading more broadly around political and social issues. So every day I would skim the headlines, not just in the New York Times, but also the Wall Street Journal. Both of which, both of those, by the way, if you look on the grand scheme are very central. They're just on different sides of the aisle. It's only when you get to the opinion articles that they move farther out. But I wanted to better understand the people that I was interacting with and where are they coming from? Where's some of the rage and anger coming from? I subscribed to a few people that helped me go much deeper into understanding, like in my own industry, the impact of racism and redlining. And for me, like I felt it as an investor, all those generations of African-American homeowners that were redlined into areas that weren't getting investment, like how much of that equity growth and what should be one of the easiest stores of wealth, right, in our society um, was just denied them. And so... It's not so I can throw rocks at people who made decisions in the past, good or bad. They made those decisions and nobody, I mean, I'm sure even Hitler looked in the mirror and said, I'm making a difference, right? I think that people all want to believe and be seen in a good light, even by themselves. So it is what it is, but I I needed to go broadly. So that has been, um, it's added about 30 minutes to my morning reading time. Um, and some of it's not always pleasant to be confronted with ideas that don't conform with my own, but I think it's made me a better leader and a better human being. So that's, it's really good. There's an answer. That's really good. You know, it's funny, speaking of Hitler, um, I'm looking out my window here and I'm looking at the Ponte Vecchio. I live on the Arno and I'm looking at the Ponte Vecchio bridge. And, uh, I recently read that he, it's so beautiful that during world war II, he didn't want to bomb it. Um, so it's, uh, it's interesting. I love the fact that you're pushing yourself outside of that. Um, okay. Well, he, he was an artist in the beginning. He was so like, and he was a human being and yeah. he did horrible things and his regime did horrible things. We don't forget that part, mm-hmm. but there's always a, a bigger story. If we, we look deep and let's just, let's, let's, let's move on from Hitler. I'm actually reading man's, uh, search for meaning right now. We don't want to, we, we, he's an extreme example. <laughs> he's an extreme example, but that, that book, um, man's search for meaning is just incredible. Uh, if you haven't yeah. read it, just read it. Uh, do you collect anything or have you collected anything? Uh, if, if you look behind me in this video, I've got five more bookshelves just like that. I buy far more books than I will ever read in a lifetime. For work, you know, I, I browse them. I look at the table of contents. I look at the packaging. I don't even intend to read a lot of the books that I buy. They're just research, but I love it. But there are so many books in our house, like we periodically have to purge. Uh-huh. I've always loved the written word. Yeah. And I love a beautifully made book. And um, so I collect books. And even going back to college, I collect words. What book have you reread the most? Well, I'm rereading Man's Search for Meaning. So part of my process, um, and it's really since I'm 30, is that when I'm reading nonfiction, I tend to heavily annotate the volume. 
I'll take notes in the margins. I'll try to capture what I think are the big ideas in the opening pages. If you read the one thing, you saw that there's in, in the American edition, I don't know what you have there in Italy. Mm-hmm. A lot of when it first came out, a lot of bookstores returned it because they thought someone had marked in it. And our designers tried to recreate how we underlined and wrote in our books with the graphics in the book. And it was so convincing, it fooled some booksellers. That's so cool. But that's like, when I read a book, I don't usually go back and reread it. I'll just go in, like, what is it that I said I was going to take away from this book? And I, you you know this, my father recently passed away. Yeah. And when he was in hospice... The, the lesson that I know that I learned from a man's search you know, for meaning is that it's what we bring to the situations in our life. Our attitude toward them is the thing that we control. And there's very few examples as extreme as to how he managed his attitude in concentration camps. And so I just thought, you know what? It might be a little unpleasant to revisit parts of that book, but I need a refresher and reminder. So I'm actually, that book, it's probably the one I've reread the most. Uh, by the way, that answer is the I've been I've done over four hundred of these. If I had to, I ask everybody that question. If I had to pick, what is the one book that everybody says they reread? It's that book. Really? So, well, that oh, makes me sure. feel good. It, for sure. it is. Uh, it puts you back in touch with your your control over your existence, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it, Victor Frankel did it just incredible. Um, okay. Two more questions for time here. What is, um, what do people never ask you, but you wish they did? Uh, would you like to skip this meeting? (laughs) (laughs) It's great. Especially Uh, in the world of zoom, man. I love it. I just skip this meeting. Last, uh, last question. We'll change it up a little bit. What one question would you like to ask me? I guess of all the things that we talked about, uh, what do you think would be the singular thing that you might take action on? And if that's too personal, you can pass. No, 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 no. You, you don't, you're, you're not a podcaster if you're trying to not be personal, that's for sure. Um, I would say what I commented on earlier, which is the five-year vision. You know, uh, you can become cynical. One can become cynical as they get older. I was listening to um, Tom Bilyeu interviewing Robert Greene. Okay. And it was very interesting because Tom Bilyeu had asked him, asked Robert Greene a question and he answered it. And Tom Bilyeu said, well, you know, I, I, I've got a, I'm writing a book now and I've, I've got 25 beliefs that I've listed in my book. And that's belief number four. And then Robert Greene said, well, in my book, my 10 laws of power, the second one, and they're literally going back and forth talking about this container that they've crafted in their book. And it had shifted away from like a real conversation. Right. And that, the reason why I'm answering it this way is at this stage of my life, I am realizing that there is not 10 ways of this and you know the three principles of that and the seven habits of this. And there's, like, there's just all kinds of different ideas. And I loved and love the one thing book, but the thing that was so confusing for me was this sort of like this absolute like, you know, what is the goal that you want? And let's work backwards on that for five years. And that was the the thing that was in my head of trying to figure out, well, I don't, you know, things change. Like I'm, I've lived long enough, but when you explain to me that it's directionally, like we, you're not going to, you may or may not wind up exactly where you're there, but you got a hell of a lot better chance if you are going directionally. So for me, that was the big takeaway. And if you don't get started, you never get the groundwork that's necessary to take advantage of the opportunity when it does present itself. Yeah. So yeah. it's all there. That's a great answer. Thank you. I, you know, impact, like I told you, is big to me. So if that helped you, that makes me really happy about spending this hour together on a very direct level. Thank you. It was you. great. You were so welcome. Do you have any uh, final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening? 
Um, I just hope people will start asking the question. You know, uh, one of the challenges we do, we have a little community and we do some corporate training is when you wake up in the morning, most people pick up their phones and either look at email or social media. Uh, the challenge we did is to ask people before they would allow themselves to do that would be to look at their goals and look at their calendar. And that reminds them of what their agenda is and how they've chosen to invest it, right? What it, what have I plan to do today to meet my goal before they go into the world of other people's agenda? So that would be my ask. Like That's a really simple thing for people to do is when they grab that phone, just set it back down and then say, all right, well, what are my goals? For this week, and does my calendar reflect it? Now, having said that, now they can go into the world of other people's priorities and they're informed. And a lot of times that keeps you from making really foolish commitments with your time that you'll regret later. It was great, man. Jay, thank you so much. We'll link everything up in the show notes. Thanks so much. It was really great talking to you and uh, say hello to Italy for me. You got it. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live. 